this feat of human accomplishment and degree of like training and preparation and physical fitness and just skilled and rock climbing really is amazing. Like it almost feels like superhuman when you see what she did. And as much as these kinds of stories really are amazing and inspiring, I don't want to take away from that accomplishment but I think that there's actually a danger for us as believers when we read stories or, or see video or pictures of such amazing feats because it, it kind of numbs our senses into thinking that if we just work hard enough that we can accomplish the things in our life, and there may be some truth to that, but in the spiritual realm, that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous when we think that we can achieve and we can accomplish in our own power because these principles of human achievement and accomplishment do not apply when you're talking about spiritual things, when it comes to the soul. Because when it comes to our hearts and being transformed, your human effort is worthless. We don't have the ability to change our own hearts. We don't have the ability to give ourselves new desires for God. We can't. We are spiritually dead. While we just sung that it is the Spirit of God who is resurrecting his people. And we read from Ephesians 5 on awake, O sleeper. It is God who has to awaken our souls. It is the Spirit of God alone who can open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's the Spirit of God alone who can open the ears of the deaf to hear the word and to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross to save us from our sins and that he is worthy of worship and to gospel alone and give us hearts that desire him. This is not accomplished by human efforts. I want to read to you a couple of verses from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Again, Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, hear this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So yes, like Emily Harrington, humans through great effort, can scale mountains. But only the Spirit of God can flatten the spiritual mountains that we face. It is by his Spirit that he brings those mountains before us and he levels them to be a plain. And so as a church, our goal, what we're after is not what we can accomplish in our own willpower. What we're after is not what we can accomplish in our own abilities or in our strategies. What we're after is to see the miraculous. We're after to see the work of God, to see the supernatural, to see him bring the dead to life, 
to see sinners now excited about Jesus and on fire for him. This is the work of the Spirit and regeneration in making us new and making us worshipers so that we can fulfill our purpose because this is all about the glory of God. And so we've been in a series in Revelation where we have been considering this word radiant and how Revelation chapter 1, so as the book of Revelation begins, you see this absolute stunningly radiant picture of who Jesus is. And if you have not read that recently, I encourage you to go re-listen to the first sermon in this series or just go back and reread Revelation 1 and just have a fresh vision of how absolutely stunning Jesus is. And he describes his churches as lamps that are designed to light in the dark place. And so Renewal Church is designed to be a lamp. We are a lamp that is supposed to pierce the darkness and bring the light of Jesus. And this is through the power of God. It is not through our power. And as we continue, we're going to look at the church of Sardis, which is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I pray that we'll be a church that just burns for Jesus, that our hearts burn for him, that we will shine for him. Let's read about this church in Revelation chapter 3, the church in the city of Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. I mean, that's amazing. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis represents the natural conclusion, the natural progression of where a church gets when you look at the previous two churches. So we looked at the church of Pergamum. This is the compromised church, the church that allowed there to be unhealthy, unbiblical, false teaching. So they compromised on that. And so that leads to the next church, the church of Thyatira. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And that church was one where they were allowing there to be sexual morality running rampant and a woman named Jezebel that was tempting men and causing all of this immorality and the church was 
not putting an end to it. And so what you see is, first, with Pergamum, you compromise on the Bible, so you have a low view of Scripture as opposed to a high view of Scripture. You have a, a low view where you compromise on truth, and you say things like, well, we can disagree on these things because it doesn't matter whether or not we agree and you can still be going to heaven. And I'm like, well, yes, that's true, but we should never compromise the Bible. We have to be committed to the authority of the Bible because it is inspired by God. It is inerrant and infallible, and it is our authority. And so when you compromise in that, it leads to, we see in the next church, Sexual sin and what happens, not just sexual, but all kinds of morality. The church begins to not look like the church. It begins to look like the world. And the church is meant to display the glory of God. And then the church begins to distort the glory of God. And like Colton preached on this, the church considers it normal. Normal to live together and not be married. Normal to have sex when you're not married. Normal to not tithe, normal to be angry all the time. It becomes just normal to be spiritually lazy. It just becomes just the norm. Just come and show up and watch the show and leave. It becomes normal. And, and that leads to the natural conclusion. So when you compromise, you look like the world, and then you're dead, church. That's Sardis. You see this progression where it starts and we understand this like in just normal life and if so if you're a student here and you blow off class you don't study you don't take notes and then you go bomb your final and then you're surprised and then your mom is like what happened I don't know I'm as shocked as you are mom I know you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for me to go to school and I, I I'm the faintest how I bombed the semester. It's like, really? Maybe you should stop playing less among us and focus more on your studies or whatever else you're gaming or whatever else it is that you're doing. It's not surprising. Or if we think of it in another example, if, if you go to the doctor and he says, oh, you're overweight, you're unhealthy, you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and you're like, really? That's so shocking. Like, it's not, it's not like I'm eating healthy. I don't even exercise. I'm so surprised that I'm unhealthy now. It's like, we, know, we understand this. If you don't exercise, you're not active, you don't eat healthy, the natural progression is you're going to be unhealthy. Like, it's just the natural progression. You blow off God's word. You look like the world. You will become a dead church. It's the natural progression. So God's call here is to wake up. Wake up. And see what is happening around you. You know, I love the word revival. And, and this whole letter to church in Sardis is about revival. Now, maybe you're picturing an old-timey, 
fire and brimstone preacher in the tent. You think, oh, that's revival. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the word means. And so the word re, what does the word re mean? As in like redo or restart or the church renewal. It means to do again. So renewal, to be made new again, like this re. So the word, the prefix re just means to again. And, and the word, so revival. And so this is a Latin-based word. So if you speak Spanish, you know this. So, if, so being alive is yo soy vivo. I am alive. So vivir means to live. In English, the word vitals comes from that same word for life. So if you have no vitals, you've got no life. You're dead. So revival means to bring to life again. So it's to live again. So to revive someone. And so what you're seeing here is this whole letter to Sardis is all about a God who brings his revival. A God who is awakening the dead, breathing life into people, and having them be fully awake in the presence of God. And describes how revival happens. Now, God has to do this. So here's a divine tension for you, okay? Here's a mystery. God has to do it. It's by his spirit. It's not by our achievement. God brings revival. And yet, there's this, there's this mystery where we have to be in the posture to receive it. So we, we have to position ourselves to receive this reviving work. And so you see here in this text, he says, wake up. There's an actual command to wake up. And it's like, well, you can't wake up unless God does the awakening. And so this is why you see this mystery and how God is the one who is sovereign over bringing revival. And yet there is a responsibility to position ourselves to then receive it. And this text describes what this looks like. What it looks like for a church, for individuals, for families to experience revival, to be made new, to experience this renewing work that God wants to do and that we would not be a church that is asleep and may we never go down this progression of being a church that is dead. So as we begin to now look at Revelation 3, let's just pray. Let's just ask his spirit to be active in our hearts. Our God in heaven, we are humbled that you would speak to us. As you read these letters written 2,000 years ago, they ring true today. And we need to hear from you. We are desperate for revival in our own hearts to be fully awake, to feel your presence, to hear your voice, to feel love for you and enjoyment in you. So I just pray that you would just rain down revival here in this church. Awaken those in this room that are spiritually dead and those of us that know you, may we be fully awake and alert. May we be a church that has awakened, awakened to your glory, to your goodness. So we just ask that you would be at work 
We need you to show up. We are here for you. Work in our hearts. Give us greater love and obedience and dependence on you for your glory. Amen. As you consider how God brings his revival and how we must position our hearts to then receive it, there are three truths from this text that we're going to just kind of distill down to its main essence. And the first one is that you need to see the reality. So if you're to experience God's work, his reviving, his revival, if you're going to experience that, number one, you have to see the reality. You cannot be blind to what's happening in you and around you. He says in verse one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. That word is you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus knows. He knows where you're at. And he sees right through you. He sees through your walls, he sees through your facade, he sees through your posing, and he sees who you actually are. And you have to know this, he loves you. And this can be overwhelming at times for us to think that. God that knows all of your thoughts, your fears, your secrets, everything, he knows everything, he knows you completely, and yet he loves you. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are. So he wants you to experience more of him and reflect more of his glory. So he calls out his church. I know your works. You're known for being this great church. And so they looked great on the outside. Picture big building, impressive programs, packed worship services, amazing music. Like it had everything, all the appearances, everything that you can see, this church had it going. Probably we had a celebrity pastor, not that you have one or ever will have one nor want one, but they exist. And so this church had it cooking, man. They were, they were, they were doing so good, and everyone knew them as this really good, big, impressive church. And he says, I know you have the name. Reputation for being alive, but I know the truth. I see through that facade, that religiosity. I see through it. You are actually dead. What you see in Sardis is a morgue with the steeple on top. It's dead, but it looks so good from the outside. So the starting point for a church, for individuals, for families to experience revival is seeing the reality. Where are you at? I'm not talking about how we pose or we pretend or what we project. I'm talking about for real. Like where is your soul actually at with God? And he causes us to wake up and see what strikes me as just so harsh, but God is sovereign, so I trust Jesus, is he has no praise for this church, like zero. He says nothing good about them. He comes out of the gate and says, I know how you look, but you're actually 
dad. So there's no praise for them. I want you to picture one of those big maps that have a red arrow and it says, you are here. Ever seen those? Of course you have. And, and sometimes I go, I'm trying to figure, okay, so here's the arrow, like where am I? And so you're trying to find your reference points. You're trying to find out where you are so that way you can know where you're trying to get. So like if, if you're in a shopping center and you don't know how to get to a store and you're like, okay, so that means I, oh, okay, this way. And so you can figure out where you're going. But you have to know where you are, where you stand, and have a reference point that's fixed. And then you can know where you're supposed to head. And that's the same thing here. You're just saying you have to see the reality. Here is a reference point. You are not well, you are dead. And what's amazing is, if you know some of the history from this church in, in the city of Sardis, is that they were reflecting their culture. And here's why I say that. It was normal in the Greek world, in the Roman world, to build a city on a mountain. Now, this is smart because for defense. If you're going to be attacked, and they had to literally go up the mountain, and you're up top with your fortifications, you can pick them all off, and it's a very secure position. So it was normal to build an acropolis, a large fortified part of the city at the mountaintop. And Sardis was no different. They had an acropolis up on the mountain. What was interesting was that unlike other cities, what was unique about Sardis is there was a second mountain that was opposite but very close to the first mountain. So it was like twin mountains. And they built on that second mountain a necropolis. Now, Necro is a Greek word for dead. And so a necropolis was literally a city of the dead. Like they built this. It's, the ruins are still there to this day. And if you go to Turkey, to Sardis, you will see this ruins of the, ne- the necropolis. And across a whole landscape is just dotted with a whole bunch of very um, elaborate, like, pyramid tombs for those that were important or leaders or that were wealthy that are buried. And they're still, still buried there to this day. And so this, the people of Sardis were, like, fascinated with, with death and all these things that you would experience in this necropolis. It was pretty dark and bleak. And so a city known for having a necropolis, a city of the dead, you had the church that was a church of the dead, reflecting their culture. Instead of radiating God's glory, they were distorting it, and they were reflecting their culture. And Jesus had a very stern message for them in verse 2. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Again, knowing some of the history is important here, one of the main temples in the Acropolis in, in Sardis was dedicated to Artemis, a Greek goddess. And They had actually begun to build that 300 years before you even get to when this letter was written. So this is already centuries old. What's interesting is that that temple was never actually completed. And so even to this day, you look at the ruins, and and you can see where it just was never even finished. And so people still went to worship in this temple, but it was incomplete. 
And so Jesus is using that same image and saying, some of you are so swayed by this culture that you're even worshiping in this incomplete temple, and your worship to me is equally incomplete. It's equally empty and hollow. So when he says not complete, that word complete refers to full or full measure. So it's like if, if you go to the coffee shop and they ask you, do, do you want to leave room for some cream? And I'm like, yes. And then I take the lid off and I'm like, whoa, like you jipped me, like put some more coffee in here. I want the full measure of my $3 coffee, like fill it up. I, I want it full. And so this word complete refers to full, like full measure to the brim. So he says, it's not, it's not full, it's empty. Your worship is empty, your church is dead. It's like the outside looks good, but the inside is empty, so it's hollow. That's what he's describing here. You have a a hollowed out existence where everything on the outside looks so good, but the inside is completely empty and you're just posing. You're just playing the religious game. But it's not real to you. It's not on the inside. But there were some, there were a few that were authentic, that were real, and were following and worshiping Jesus. He says, strengthen what remains. There's some life, there's a few that haven't caved in, and yet... He says they're about to die, like they're barely holding on. It's very hard to stay faithful when the church as a whole is not, when the majority and the leadership is not faithful and the culture is coming in and it's hard. Jesus says that they're barely holding on, that even there it says about to die. So his call is to wake up. And you see him say it again in verse 3. He repeats this. Remember then what you received, the gospel, the good news. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, there it is again, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, again, knowing the history here is very interesting and helpful to understand what he's talking about. In the ancient world, Sardis was very well known for being fortified up on a mountain and impossible to defeat. And yet, there were two different times in history where Sardis actually was defeated. The first time was in 546 BC when the Persians were ruling the world and King Cyrus led an attack against Sardis to take over that part of of Turkey. Now, according to history, there the, the Persians were on the bottom of this mountain, this fortified wall, and they're looking up, and they're seeing the soldiers from Sardis up top, and, and they were kind of sieging the city, trying to figure out how are we going to take over this, like, impossible-to-conquer city. And as it got late that night, there was a soldier who was kind of hanging out on, on, the, on the top of the wall, and he was not alert. He was not awake. He was, he was doing this number, you know, the... Just, ever since I went to church where they, their head kind of just bobs like that? Yes, you have. Well, this was happening to the soldier. He was doing the head bobbing thing, and his helmet fell off. And, 
And it, no, for real, it was in history. His helmet fell off and it rolled down the mountain. And there was a Persian that was watching and watched this sleepyhead up there who was not doing his job and was not alert. He was asleep. And then he saw him wake up because his helmet fell off. And then he saw the soldier kind of go down and like disappear. And he's like, where did he go? And then like he appeared lower down in the mountain. And then he saw him back at the top. And he realized, oh, there's a secret passageway. And he told King Cyrus. And they checked it out. And sure enough, they found the secret passageway. And the Persians went right in to find the army of Sardis asleep and slaughtered them and conquered it for Persia. And it happened again. It's crazy. Now, years later, in 214 BC, this was when the Seleucid, if you know history, with Alexander, when he died young, he broke up into different kingdoms. One was the Seleucids. We don't have time to get into it. But anyway, one of these kingdoms, the Seleucids, also were trying to take over. And what happened is very similar. They found a secret passageway. They found an area that was not being guarded. And, and the Seleucids got into the city and found all the people of Sardis asleep and slaughtered them and conquered it for the Seleucid kingdom. And so there was a history of this incredibly powerful people with a powerful army and strong towers, great position, but because they were asleep, they got destroyed. And so when Jesus talks to this church in this city and says, wake up, or I will come like a thief in the night and you won't know when I'm going to come. He was referencing historical context and what had happened to the city. And again, you see the church reflecting culture instead of reflecting the glory of God. There's an author named Tom Rayner. He was the um, director of Lifeways, the publishing house of the Baptists, and, and he, he does research. Like, he has a whole team, and they'll do all kinds of research and write books about it so that we can understand the church and our culture. Well, Tom Rayner, several years ago, six years ago, did a very extensive research project on churches that had died, like close their doors, shut down churches that had died. And interviewed thousands of people and then wrote a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. So he said, what are the factors that lead to churches dying? It's, it's, it's really, it's not even a long book. It's a short book, but very insightful. And I won't review it to you on your own time. If you want to read that, I encourage you to read it. Autopsy of a Deceased Church. But he gives some symptoms of all the churches that died had the same symptoms of them being sick. And I'll give you just three of these symptoms. He says, one symptom was no clear plan for making disciples and disciple makers. There was no clear plan for how they were going to be making disciples. Second, he says, lots of programs and lots of ministry clutter. But many contribute, he says, little or nothing to making disciples. He says, lots of activity, a lot of ministry, but none of it actually led to making disciples. And third, he also mentions 
Lots of busyness and activities, but much of it with no real sense of purpose. And so the churches that died began with some of these symptoms. And then he, he lists 10 factors, and I'll just give you three, just give you an idea. He said, gives 10 factors that all churches had in common when they died. And here's three. He says, one that was common across the whole board was a great commission becomes a great omission. The Great Commission becomes a great omission. What he means is members of dying churches didn't really want to reach new people unless it met their preferences and allowed them to remain comfortable. So they were willing to reach new people as long as they could stay comfortable. Another Example of this, or, or another factor from dead churches, was it became a preference-driven church. And everyone was thinking about their own preferences on attitude was self-serving. It's a entitlement attitude came in. It was just a very self-centered, preference-drivenness. And I'll give you one last one that's important. He mentions that across the board, dying churches obsessed over facilities. Churches that died across the board had had big capital campaigns. We're focused on a bigger building, bigger building, bigger building, biggering, biggering, more people, get bigger, just get bigger. And all of a sudden, before you realize the church has lost the vision, the focus becomes the building, not making disciples. The church gets unhealthy and eventually dies. And what's amazing to me is over the years, and I've talked, and I've been in different churches for a long time, and, and you'll meet people that will dig their heels, and they will say, I would rather the church die than change. And oftentimes, they get their wish. May that never be said of Renewal Church. May we never forget the great commission of go and make disciples. May we stay simple and intentional, biblical, missional, with multiplication as the goal of seeing the glory of God radiating through this faith family. And may we see more churches planted. I get asked all the time, so when are you going to build the building? And I'm like, we're not. Like, but you need, no, you don't. The church is the people, not the building. We don't need a building. We need a place to gather. Yes, God provides. He has, and he will continue to do so. But we're not going to focus on the capital campaign and building a building until we already have the culture of being a multiplying church planting church. When the culture is solidified, like the concrete's still wet here, guys. Let's just be honest, all right? This is a young church. We're a year and a half in, and the concrete is wet, and I love it. I love it. I love being part of a healthy church, and I can say that with a clear conscience before God, that this is a church that is healthy. A church that is awake, that is not 
dead and does not have the symptoms that you see with sick churches that eventually die. But if we want to continue to be healthy and to replicate that, to plant more churches, then all of us have to stay fully awake. We cannot fall asleep. You can't as a father. The stakes are too high. We talked last week about elders and, and the need for us to have elders. And I talked to a few people this week, and they were like, Pastor, that was a hard message. Because I love this church, but man, like, I, I, I really find myself more egalitarian. Like, I believe that we should have women that can be elders. Like, that became a conversation this week. And, and so we talked through that. But, but what, what I believe the, one of the biggest problems is, is you have a lot of churches, and ours can be the same because we're, we're a church made of humans that are not perfect is a lot of men are on the sidelines. A lot of men don't step up and don't lead. And so men who are not being men of God, and then women who are women of God, and they see the needs, what do you think they're going to do? What do you you think? They're going to step up and meet the need. And then they're told, sit back down. What we need is men of God to become the men of God they're supposed to be so that women can find their place in a complementary role. And so we're, we're not going to compromise the Bible. What we're going to do is call men to become men who love God and pursue him and lead their families and teach and disciple their sons and daughters. Teach your boys how to be men and teach your girls what it looks like to be a man so that she will look for one when she's looking to get married someday. We have to be fully awake and engaged Be alert. See the reality of where we're at. This is so important for us as individuals and as a church is see the reality. We cannot be blind to where we're at. So I'll close this first point on just asking, where are you at? Where where are you at spiritually? And I'm not talking about what we pose and pretend, but like for real, where are we at? We must see the reality to experience God's revival. Number two, seize the remedy. So you have to see the reality first, and the second, seize, grab hold, take it, seize the remedy. He says it, keep it. Jesus says specifically, keep it, grab it, take Hold of it. Go after it. No more messing around. I had something just for me so like surreal happen to me yesterday. I went out with some brothers and I went hunting for the first time. And it was this for me, like if you, if you know anything about my past, like this is just crazy for me to be in a deer blind and pointing a crossbow at an animal and then planning to kill it. Like, for me, this is just a very, very new experience. And, and I was there, and I was, I was there with, with Joel Casebolt, and he said, all right, take that one, shoot that one. And I looked, and I lined it up, and I just shot it. Like, I didn't hesitate. I didn't wait. I was like, the guy who knows more than me said, take the shot. I took the shot. And I shot it right through the heart. Like, it was like this perfect shot. I was like, whoa, it was just amazing. Like, I couldn't hardly believe that that actually happened. 
And for me, it was so much bigger than killing a deer to feed my family. I mean, that's cool, but it was far more than that. As I was thinking, it was a don't hesitate. Like, what are you waiting for? You take the shot. Don't hold back. And some of you are spiritually, you're holding that crossbow, and you're not pulling the trigger. What are you waiting for? Seize it. Seize the life that God has given to you and called you to. Don't hesitate. Be that man and that woman that God is calling you to be and take hold of his revival, of his renewing work. And when it comes down to you, take hold of Jesus himself. You see this. He gives several commands. He gives five commands. He says, wake up. He says that one twice, which means be alert, focus on Jesus. Then he says, strengthen. This is another command. No compromise. Not being content with shallow faith. Strengthen. And he says, remember. He says, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget who Jesus is, what he did for you on the cross and taking your sin and being that sacrifice. Don't forget, remember who Jesus is. Remember who you are. You are made new. You have his spirit. You are called and anointed. You you are strengthened through his spirit. Remember, don't forget who you are. And he says, keep, is hold on, grab hold of what you have received. Don't let go. Don't drift. And he says, repent. Turn away from that sin that is keeping you from God. Turn away from that. Whatever that is that is keeping you away from God, turn away from it. Repent of it. And so all of these ways that he is saying, all of these commands is a seizing, grabbing hold of everything who Jesus is and his calling for you. Verse 4 shows this. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know, I was reading about history in Sardis, and I, and I came across this one religious practice that is honestly just gruesome. And I won't give you a lot of details because it really is gruesome these worshipers of Artemis um, trying to reenact a myth is what it really boils down to. They, they would wear white robes, they would go into the temple, and, and they would get as drunk as they possibly could before passing out, and they would mutilate themselves. They would, these men would actually castrate themselves and present that offering to Artemis. This is just barbaric, like that they would do this, and in the process, they would, of course, soil their garments. Like, I don't have to explain why. You can use your imagination. On It was a disgusting, revolting, and horrifying pagan practice, a way that they would worship their goddess. And so Jesus is saying that spiritually, that is what you're doing, this dead church. You are soiling your garments with this horrifying pagan worship. 
And you might think, oh, that's crazy. I would not ever do that. And yet the question is, really? Are you sure? Because here as humans, we can pursue things of this world that promise us joy and happiness. Like a man who goes to the arms of another lover or to pornography, and we think that that's going to bring joy, and all you're doing is mutilating your own soul. You're hurting yourself. You're killing yourself. It's spiritual suicide. And so before we're too hard on on these ancient Greek pagans, we need to just stop and look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we doing anything in our lives where it hurts our soul, it hurts our spouse, it hurts our reputation, our, our testimony. It, it's not godly, and we know it's not, and we give ourselves to it, and we are actually simply just mutilating our own soul and soiling the garments that Jesus has given to us. It's all about taking hold of Jesus walking in his spirit, and you see that as the book end. When you see in verse 1, it says that he holds the seven spirits of God. The seven is a whole, means complete, and so it means the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is referenced in verse 1, and then in verse 6, at the end of the letter, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so whenever you see a bookend, whether it's a psalm or in this case a letter or a poem, how it begins and ends, usually there's a parallel. Like in the psalms, it's very common, where the first line and the last line are, are a bookend that give you insight into the meaning of that particular poem. So in this letter, when you see a bookend, beginning with the Spirit, ending with the Spirit, it's, it's telling you something. The people that were spiritually dead had not been made alive by the Spirit They were not walking in the spirit, and those that are victorious are walking in the spirit. And so if we're going to experience his renewal, what we seize, seizing this remedy, is seizing Jesus himself walking with his spirit. It is prayer. It is having people around you that would just be honest with you. Like this morning, it was amazing. Like, I don't know, like an hour ago, I was walking in the... Welcome center, and the amazing sister says, Matthew, you okay? And I'm like, yeah. She was like, no, 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 you're not. She was like, you look tired. Are you okay? And I was like, oh, okay, actually, you're right. I, I am a little bit tired. Um, but that's all it is. There's nothing else going on. Like, I'm, I'm honestly just tired. She was like, okay, as long as you're not lying. I'm like, no, 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 for real. Um, man, I love that. Like, we all need that. People in our lives that will say, How are you doing? Are you actually seizing, grabbing hold of, keeping, remembering, repenting, all these commands? Are you doing that? Like, if we don't have other people around us, we don't have a shot. He's writing to the church. We need each other. We need each other to spur each other on to good works as the day draws near. And so the posture that our hearts take is beginning with seeing the reality where we're at 
And then by faith through the Spirit in community, we seize hold of this remedy, which is Jesus himself. Lastly, as we wrap up, we savor this rejoicing. We taste it. We enjoy it. We savor it. Savor the rejoicing. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Man, that's amazing. There were ruins that you can go see today. And if you go to Sardis, you'll see ruins of a very large synagogue, like massive, like over a thousand people could be seated. It was just this extraordinarily large synagogue right next to the temple. It's crazy, like synagogue, and then there's like these pagan temples. There was a very large Jewish population at that point in Sardis. And then it says in verse 5, it says that Jesus will confess the name of those who have not soiled their garments, those who are faithful and victorious in Christ. So he says that he will confess their name. And so it seems as though the church in Sardis had not been confessing the name of Jesus. That's why they were a dead church. And the few that didn't were confessing the name of Jesus. And so here's what, what I can tell from the text and by looking at this historical context. It seems as though the church in Sardis died because they were trying to blend in with their culture. Because the Jewish religion was recognized in the, in the Roman government. So if you were a Jew, you weren't persecuted. Now, if you were a follower of Jesus, then you were being persecuted. So it seems like the believers in Jesus were trying to blend in with the Jews and blend in with the pagans and just blend in with the culture. Don't confess the name of Jesus. Minimize the gospel. Water down the word. And as long as you have a religious gathering that isn't claiming anything too strongly about Jesus or his gospel, then you can avoid hardship, avoid persecution. And you can remain comfortable. And don't we see that today? Minimize Jesus. Don't confess his name. Soften the edges of God. Dilute and like water down the gospel. Draw the big crowds. Blend in with the culture. You don't even, you're not even set apart. You don't even look like the character of God. You look like the culture. But in doing so, you avoid confrontation. You avoid anyone speaking anything negative about you. You're welcomed by the culture. But we are not told to look like the culture. We are told to radiate the glory of God. We are told to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Not be ashamed. Are you trying to blend in with the culture to avoid confrontation or avoid it being difficult? Are you just trying to just 
be religious enough so that you can feel good about yourself, but not take the Jesus thing too seriously, because that would mean that you may have to endure some persecution or some discomfort. The call to follow Jesus is the call to be faithful unto death. That is what you see in Revelation, faithful unto death. And then you receive these white robes when you're resurrected. And it says that Jesus gives three promises here. He says you'll be clothed in white, pure, holy, set apart. And I will not blot, blot out your name from the book of life. You, will, you belong to Jesus. Your name is in that book that was written before the foundation of the world. You belong to him. And he says that he will acknowledge your name before his father and his angels. Here's what I picture. I picture like a graduation where you have everyone watching. You have the, the presidents of the, of the university or seminary. And then, and then you have the person has their name called and they walk to the front, right? Well, think of that in the ultimate cosmic sense. We have all of creation watching. And it's not the president, it's the creator, the redeemer, Jesus, who called your name. And he says, I love him. And I know his name. And I love her. And him. And her. And him. And you. He knows you. And he's not ashamed of you. He will acknowledge your name. He will not deny your name. I think sometimes look in the mirror and, and we feel like we're just not worthy or we get so down in ourselves. But it says those who confess the name of Jesus are worthy and you don't need to be ashamed. You bear your shame no more. It's paid for on the cross. We can walk with hope with our heads held high, knowing that we have a Redeemer who paid the price and made a way, and he is not ashamed of you. Jesus is worth it. Whatever it costs, he is worth it. So we savor this rejoicing. We savor this victory. We taste it. We enjoy him. You know, the word name is a major theme in this, in this letter. Four times. As the church has the name for being alive, but is not. It says there were a few names that were so faithful. It says that he will not erase the name of those whom he loves in his book of life. And he will confess the name of those loyal to him before his father and all of creation. The theme of name is a very important thing because your name is your identity. So experiencing God's review, his renewal, his revival, experiencing more of who God is in your life is about your identity, who you are in Christ. You have a new name. Are you walking in it? Are you fully awake, fulfilling your purpose? Is your soul asleep? Or is it awake in God's presence? 